A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on February 3rd, 2021. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our guest today is YouTuber Stephanie Harlow, who hosts True Crime videos on YouTube and has this segment, I love the name, Coffee and Crime Time. (laughs) She's passionate about crime, history, and of course, giving a voice to the voiceless. Welcome, Stephanie. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited that you're here because um, I love your perspective. You're you're so passionate about the cases. You do so much research. You're, as you said, you're the everyday crime fan, right? And mm-hmm. and you want to know more, and you have the logical logical questions. So let's dive into today's cases. Yes. So we've got an update on a really bizarre murder case of a paranoid tech millionaire Bitcoin guy who was making a bomb shelter because he was afraid of nuclear war. I know this is a case that you have been following, so I can't wait to hear your perspective on this one. And I know you've got a lot of details on that one. But first, a woman has been arrested after her roommate was found dismembered in a sealed freezer in the woods near a national park. What is it with chopping up body parts? I feel like practically every week we have a new case on someone who's been chopped to bits. I don't understand it because it's not as if it really helps to hide the identity. Usually when somebody or a law enforcement finds a dismembered or um, beheaded body, they're still able to identify that person. So it just seems like a lot of gruesome work to go through. You have to wonder what the mindset is. I feel that there's something that goes on in the process of chopping up the body, which is never easy, right? You know, even when you watch movie scenes, it's a messy, difficult labor-intensive job to take apart a human being. So clearly something else is going on, and there's a lot of rage, I think, involved, because there are many other ways to try and get rid of a body after you've killed them. So let's look at this case. On January 21st, Corey Bomley, who's 59 years old, was taken into custody. This was a traffic stop in Dane County, Wisconsin. Now, there was a warrant for her arrest, she was, the the warrant was out of Oklahoma for first degree murder with deliberate intent and desecration of a corpse. She is accused of allegedly killing her roommate, 53-year-old Talena Galloway, whose remains were found in Arkansas. So we've got like three states going on here. Lived in Oklahoma. Murder, according to authorities, took place in Oklahoma. Body was dumped in a, well, I guess, yes, dumped into a freezer and then left in the forest in Arkansas. And then the suspect moved to Wisconsin in the middle of all this. So a lot (laughs) going on there. (laughs) Yes, she was on the move. Uh, And in fact, going through this case, looking at the, the the, the extent that she went to cover up the crime and get rid of the body and kind of cover her tracks, I found to be almost impressive like she really put some thought into this i think yes stephanie but it's always the the, you know when they when the plan becomes more elaborate the disappearance plan or the line or the story that's told it all had to do with supposedly that talena was upset because she had gotten a um notification right she was told this is what This is what was told to authorities. She found out she had COVID. She didn't want to go to the hospital, never wanted to be intubated. There was a Facebook posting saying, I've got COVID. I need some time to think about this. I can't deal with this, right? And then she disappears. Well, I think what happened was um, Corey said Talina left, went to the doctor thinking she might have COVID because she had symptoms and she got screened. And then her doctor obviously didn't have the results right away. And he said, well, go home and quarantine just in case. Because this was, what, last March. Am I right? So it's, or April. March, April. So that's just it. Was she last seen at the very end of March? 
April. There's like a three-week window in there where it's very messy. Allegedly, she went to the doctor around this April 7th day when the Facebook post went up. Um, So the doctor's not going to have her results right away. He says, go home and quarantine. She goes home and allegedly tells her roommate and friend, Corey, I'm afraid that if I have COVID, I'll have to go to the hospital and I'll have to be intubated. And obviously, that is a valid fear to have. That's a scary thing for anybody thinking that you might have COVID right on the cusp of it being a thing. Nobody really knew anything about it or how to protect ourselves from it. So these are valid fears. But then Corey says she just leaves because she doesn't want to go to the hospital and be intubated. And that's when she posts this Facebook post on April 7th saying, I'm, you know, I'm not feeling well. You say well. she, when you say she, it it's on, it's on Talina's Facebook page, but mm-hmm. there is question as to who posted it. Is that correct? Personally, I don't think that she posted it <laughs> yeah. because it was what, I think March the end of March when the last person besides Corey heard from Talina and that was her boss because she worked from home for Microsoft. So he was the last person or he or she was the last person who spoke to Talina besides Corey. And Corey says the last time she saw her was April 7th, but she didn't report her missing till the 17th, I believe. Several weeks go by. And here's what's very bizarre. Uh, Corey makes a big deal of telling police that um, she took some things with her, like, for example, she took her phone and took her driver's license. However, she left her purse and her car in the driveway, and Corey allegedly told police that she was headed to Arkansas, and that, okay, so we're going from Oklahoma to Arkansas. We leave our car in the driveway. Oh, that's right. So Corey says, ride-sharing apps. That's how she got there. Yeah, but her phone was turned off. Talina's phone was turned off on the 8th. So, and, and Corey said she brought a lot of other random things. $700 in cash, to be specific. Two guns, I think. Yeah, a 9mm firearm, a forty-five caliber firearm, her meds, and a bottle of alcohol. Now, I don't know if she meant alcohol, like rubbing alcohol, which somebody might bring if they were afraid of COVID, or or alcohol like liquor. That was a, a question I had. What, what kind of alcohol was she bringing in this ride-sharing app with $700 in cash and two guns? Yeah, none of this. I mean, when you step back, that story seems really incredible. And then for people who knew Talina either as friends or her family, none of this seemed to make sense. It was out of character. And this is where all the red flags are coming up. The story just doesn't make sense. It may be elaborate, but if it doesn't make sense, I feel that sometimes, and again, you know, Corey is just charged here, but I do believe that sometimes people go so far in trying to be so clever that sometimes the simplest answers, you know, are are a lot easier, you know, there's less messing up, but when it like gets so detailed and so convoluted, you're like, what? Yeah. I don't know if you're an office fan, but Michael Scott is always telling Dwight, keep it simple, stupid, right? <laughs> so, And that's pretty much it. I think people see too many of these movies. And obviously, a good crime movie isn't a good crime movie if there's not some elaborate plot. But in real life, yes, your best bet is is to keep it simple. But I think the point was they were in Wagoneer County, right? Wagoneer mm-hmm. County. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the police at first... They were speaking to Corey because she was the only one there. This was, you know, Talina's roommate, her friend. And there was no family who lived in Wagoneer County close by. So the police are going to go to to Corey because who else are they going to talk to? Who else was with her every day and knew, you know, her her day-to-day routine? And the family who's not local, they're like, no, no, she would never leave. She would never not contact us. She would never turn her phone off. This doesn't seem like her. But Corey's like, well, you know, she was in a bad mental state. And so I think at first the police initially were like, well, maybe this could be, but then things started popping up, right? That that's Yes, off. but I, I do believe also that police always immediately, always the last person to have seen someone who's disappeared under suspicious circumstances. To me, the car in the driveway when you're in an area that is not urban is very suspicious. Mm-hmm. And women do not leave their purses. <laughs> yes, you can take your cell phone and your ID, but if you're going for a long time and you're going far away, 
that's not logical. So I have a feeling that from the very beginning, because it's always, you always look at the last person and the person closest in that person's life, right? So that's either going to be a roommate, a housemate, a lover, a best friend. They are immediately tops on, on the list here. So police say that another huge red flag was that apparently, this is according to the police, Talina never saw a doctor, that she was never tested for coronavirus, for COVID-19. And that, again, leads us back to her family now saying that post on Facebook doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound like her. Nothing is making sense. And I think if you're the police, when you confirm that the person who has disappeared, that the, that, the mo that the important part of that story is she's freaked out about coronavirus and that she wasn't tested and didn't go to the doctor, that's a massive red flag. And who's the one person telling you that story? Well, it was Corey. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Uh, she's the one who's got all the details on this. So... Um, Police also find some troubling evidence. They start, you know, as time goes by, they they start looking at the house. They obviously look into Corey. And police uncovered some troubling evidence there in the house that they shared. And what's it's not clear what their relationship was, if they were just roommates, if there were more than that. It's really unclear. The other thing that's real, also unclear at this point, the sheriff says, still doesn't know what the motive is. Like, what happened? Yes. Still still don't know that part of why someone is dead. So in the backyard, police say that they found the charred remains of a mattress that that Galloway had recently purchased. And it had been torched two days before Corey reported her roommate missing. Okay, on its own, alone, it's kind of bizarre. But then if someone is missing, it's not, right? You Does this, like... I mean, concern you? I live in New York, so I, I'm not, you know, burning mattresses in my my backyard at any time. So it's bizarre for me personally at any time. But th that wasn't the only thing. She had also rearranged all the furniture in their house. So it made it appear so it would look less suspicious that the bed wasn't there, basically. Right. right. To make it look like there never was a bed there. Right. Right. And it made it look like um, Talina was sleeping in the front bedroom when, in fact, she'd been occupying the back bedroom. And I think once the police get a warrant and get in the house, they figure out why that is. In my opinion, it's never explicitly said, but Talina was sleeping in the back bedroom. And then when they go on the house with the warrant, they find blood, not only in the garage, which is where they found a good amount of blood, but they also found blood in that back bedroom where Talina was sleeping. So maybe she thought, well, if I make it seem as if she's sleeping in the front bedroom, if they do ever come in here, they won't go into the back bedroom. They'll just check the bedroom they thought she was sleeping in. You know, maybe she was trying to kind of think a couple steps ahead, but it, it didn't work because typically I think a crime scene is processed usually the entire house. Yes. And also this whole idea where she's constantly pointing in an opposite direction almost of the evidence after a while you just know to look in the opposite direction that she's pointing you in because that must be exactly where it is. She becomes a little obvious there. That's her MO, yeah. Yeah. And so police said also that they found some internet searches that Corey had done, and allegedly she had looked up how to get blood out of concrete and wood. Yeah. That alone is obviously not criminal by any means. You can search anything you want. But when you start to piece together a case or a story, that certainly fits the narrative here. Yeah, with the garage floor having blood on it, she'd painted over the garage floor. And she'd painted over the garage floor um, after Talina went missing. So they they probably are putting two and two together. She's looking up how to get rid of blood from concrete, a.k.a. the garage floor. She painted over it, but they found, you know, using luminol, they found signs that blood had been there and had been attempted to be cleaned away. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. <laughs> really adding up here. And what's amazing is how long it would actually take to actually charge her because there's a lot here that's very suspicious. When then police search a storage unit that Corey had been renting and they discovered pieces of Talina's driver's license all cut up. Remember, she told police that one thing she did take with her despite leaving everything else, 
was the driver's license. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, what am I saying? She points in that direction, <laughs> and it's clearly it's going to lead you back to something that, that she's allegedly done based on what she's saying here. Then there's another storage unit. I, I don't know how many storage units people there's have. There's only two. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it just seems you have a house and then you have two storage units. Uh, <laughs> and in the other storage unit, um, apparently Corey rented this one under a fake name. Mm -hmm. Police found two firearms and several hundred rounds of ammunition. Okay. And well, a trailer tire. And a trailer tire which will become much more interesting as we go along. Then... I have a question. Yes. This yeah. is in... Wait, what state is this in again? It's Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma, yes. And one of the, tr one of the storage units was in, I believe, a, a different state. One was in Edmonton, Oklahoma. That was the one where... Um, the license had been found cut up, but then and then she had actually rented that one under her real name. But then I believe the other one was in a different Muskegee. Muskegee is that in Oklahoma? Muskegee. As well? Um, I could that be Wisconsin, Wisconsin or Oklahoma? I think it might be Wisconsin. But are gun laws um much more lax in Oklahoma and Wisconsin? Because there's a lot of guns in this case and a lot of ammo. There is, but if they were you know, legally purchased and she had a license then it would not be an issue right you could be a hunter or you could have a lot of guns legally but it was an issue because she was a past felon right she'd already been yes. convicted of identity theft i believe before any of this had ever happened it doesn't explicitly say when but to be to be a felon and be in possession of this many firearms that would probably be an issue no matter where you are because of her past history, which mm. ends up getting her arrested on this probation violation. And she does bond out. And then that leads to the move to Wisconsin. So now she's got some legal trouble going on on a separate charge, but that is not connected directly to the disappearance of Talena Galloway. Well, the original one wasn't, but this second one, because she was arrested before she was arrested for murder. She was arrested for using Talina's credit card to pay for her lawyer. She was arrested for selling, you know, her things on eBay. She also took Talina's truck, I believe it was, and brought it to a scrapyard. And she told the people at the scrapyard, oh, this is, you know, it's legally my truck. It belongs to a family member. It did, but it's not worth it for me to sell locally because it's not running really well. So... I'm just going to scrap it. Like, give me whatever you can for it. And the people at the scrapyard were like, I don't know what you're talking about. This car runs fine, but okay. They gave her $200 for it. But then later they said they were not going to have any problem selling it locally because it was a fine car. And then she was arrested for that, you know, using Talena's credit card and selling her truck, pretending that it was hers. So she was arrested for that initially, I believe, in June and then she bonded out. And I think at that point, I don't let me know if you agree. The police are thinking at this point, like she's involved, but this is all we can get her for right now. She's involved with this woman's disappearance. Right. Uh, selling her personal stuff on eBay to Lena's things obviously is very disturbing to Talena's family. But one could make the argument you know, okay, well, people always react weirdly when people are missing. You know, I, I'm not giving her the benefit of the doubt. It's like, but people don't always react the way you expect them to. Was it suspicious? Absolutely. And then using, as police say, using Talina's credit card to pay for her, meaning Corey's Lawyer. Um, attorney fee, <laughs> $1,500, that's, that's incredible, right? That's incredible. So all these things, when you piece them together, look incredibly suspicious. Also, sometimes there's a coldness to us. Like I said, you know, you never know. People react so weirdly. But the fact that Corey was selling her roommate's personal things as opposed to I don't know, a saw or, you know, something that maybe wasn't as personal. Mm -hmm. The fact that the items were more personal gets you back to that whole when someone chops someone up and it takes so long, what's brewing, right? Yeah. Is, is, it, is it personal or was it just, hey, I just need some money? 
an indifference, right. a, like you said, a callousness, a coldness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we have Lori arrested on June 6th on these five counts of obstruction of justice, two counts of destruction of evidence, one count of credit card fraud, and one count of larceny. That's for all the events that we just described. Mm -hmm. Now, she also faced four charges of possessing a firearm while registered as a felon. That would be the issue. Mm -hmm. She could not legally have had those firearms. So because she was a previously convicted felon, as you said, in that credit card case involving fraud. At this point, she moves to Madison, to a suburb of Madison, Wisconsin. To me, this is, the, honestly, th- this next part is the most fascinating of the whole case because everything hinges on what's about to happen. So on June 8th of 2020, a witness in Arkansas contacts the local sheriff's department to say that she's seen this pickup truck that's towing a small trailer and it's driven into this secluded area near a national park. And for anyone who, you know, people are always on top of other people who are trying to illegally camp or park or anything like that. So this is a vigilant person. And I guess I I found her to be very brave. Really? (laughs) Yeah, because she said it's the middle of nowhere. It's a secluded area. She saw something she saw to be suspicious. And this woman, she was like, I'm following this vehicle. Right. And to me, I would have been like, if I see something suspicious, who knows what I'm walking into? I guess. But if you have like ownership of the area, mm-hmm. if you live there or you use this park, you become very protective. That's what I mean. It's like usually a lot of like fishermen who are out. They will always report someone who's fishing illegally. If you're a hunter and you see someone hunting illegally, it's almost as if you're, it's part of your world and you're preserving it and you you have this sense of, it's like the nosy neighbor is how I describe it, right? I, I know just in my neighborhood, we're always, it's like, what's going on? What is that car? I've never seen this. You know, we're just, we're just, we're just like that. So she wants to know more, okay? And she says this, the activity seems suspicious. She detects a foul odor and then said, quote, that it was a foul-smelling thick liquid that had pooled on the floor of the trailer, according yeah. to the sheriff's deputies. So she calls this in. And this, this is what's... what I, this is what I didn't understand. She sees the truck with the trailer drive to the secluded area. She walks over, finds the vehicle in the trailer. Nobody's around. Mm-hmm. So she she looks over and she says she smells an odor by the trailer. Now, was the trailer open at this time? And that's how she saw inside to see the floor of it, this thick smelling or foul smelling liquid? I, I, I don't, I can't tell you 100% because I don't know that fact, but it doesn't seem plausible that it would have been open because if it had been open, then she could have seen the rest of it. Unless whoever mm-hmm. drove this truck and trailer there opened the trailer, took the the refrigerator and Talina's body out of it and was disposing of it at that point when this woman approached. So the trailer was open and that's how yes. she saw what was inside. Yes. And that could be possible. It's interesting that they haven't released this person's name and as part of this investigation as I always say, there are always a lot of details that are missing that don't make sense mm-hmm. that generally will come out in court as the case progress progresses. Now, she was very smart because she wrote down the license plate and then she called the sheriff's department. And this to me is, is the tragedy. It, it's a misstep, I'm going to say, because or a missed opportunity as well. And it would cost the investigation six months of time because of this. I was listening to the sheriff's press conference yesterday, and he kind of sidestepped whether Arkansas dropped the ball here because the call was made, and because he was vague on his answer, at least in my interpretation of his answer, it seemed like the officer or the deputy went out and didn't find anything, although I was reading into some of his words the question of whether anybody went out there that's that was just what i what i gathered from yesterday's press conference with the sh- with the sheriff okay 
So let's continue along on January 14th. So we're moving along six months here. The same witness, the same woman, <laughs> she's walking in the woods again in the same area. And this time she finds a white box-like freezer with its lid tape shut and a foul smell coming out of it. This poor woman. She, oh, she's amazing. You she's know. amazing. She's going to have nightmares, though, at this point. <laughs> She honestly, I think the sheriff's department should hire her. <laughs> she so she reports now to the Polk County Sheriff's Department, the same place she called six months earlier. She calls it in. Deputies go out and they find human remains inside this freezer. And the here's the best part of it: this witness wrote down the sheriff wrote down the license plate the first time, and she still had it. In her notes. She's she still gave had it to them plate. again. Yes. <laughs> and where in the world did that license plate lead to? To Lena Galloway. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? The victim. Yeah. Right. Who's, whose remains, obviously, it goes without saying, ended up being in that freezer. And that same freezer was reported as being missing from the home of Talina and Corey. And that same freezer was suspected to have been in this trailer that Corey lied to police and said she didn't own. She said she'd sold this trailer in March, but then even you know deputies and witnesses had seen the trailer after she'd sold it. I think as as recent as like May, and it ended up that she'd stored it at a friend's house. And when it was at her friend's house being stored, she'd had it plugged into electricity. So I I believe the police are theorizing that at this point. Selena's body was inside that freezer, which was inside the trailer, which was plugged into power so that it would obviously keep her body cold until Corey could figure out what to do with it. After that, she then took the trailer from this friend's home and put it in that storage unit, the same one where um, I believe where the license was found cut up. So, <laughs> yeah, she's she's doing she's doing a lot. She's doing the very most at this point, which which makes me wonder: Did she do this alone? That was one of my main questions. Did anybody help her? She was what fifty nine years old, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, but she's a spry one. I was watching her um, her um, her hearing because <laughs> she's having a hearing. She did. She waived extradition, so she's going to go from Wisconsin to Oklahoma. And as I'm watching her and her body language, um, Corey's fascinating because uh, everything's virtual now. So Corey is. So she's behind bars, and she's got her arms sticking out and kind of hanging out, very like old school 1950s. <laughs> I'm in a jailhouse movie. <laughs> like a, a sort of Al Capone thing. <laughs> <laughs> she's really got it. She's got a lot of attitude there. And her attorney's on. Everyone's on virtually and the judge is on. And she makes it absolutely clear that she is waiving extradition. And, and she doesn't say a lot, but she does say that she wants to get back to Oklahoma right away because mm -hmm. she wants to deal with these charges. So it's like. It's almost as like she's the racehorse. I'm yeah. like, I got to get out of here because I, I, I got to deal with a murder charge. It was, uh, and I love the judge because the judge was so polite. He's like, well, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> He's like, I, I've seen the evidence. I don't know what you think you're going to do here, but good luck to you, ma'am. I wish you, I wish you the best of luck. Um, she, so to I move all the furniture in the house, like moving furniture from bedrooms, taking the bed outside, burning it. Now she's got her trailer at a friend's house. Like, did this friend absolutely have no idea what was going on? Did someone help her move this furniture around? I mean, I suppose she could have done. I couldn't do it. I'm definitely not in the best shape of my life. Middle of COVID, you know, definitely probably couldn't have moved an entire house of furniture on my own. So it does make me wonder if there was somebody else that maybe didn't know what she was doing, but had assisted her in these things just because she asked them to, you know, help me move some furniture around, things like that. It's possible. But also, I would say if she indeed did do all of this, she had several weeks ahead of everyone. She had weeks ahead of the police before she, before Talina was reported. Mm -hmm. So that time is precious. You can get a lot done with yeah. that time. It's one thing if you're trying to hurry and get everything done in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But if you have a few weeks lead time to do that, to haul stuff, yeah, I, I think it is possible. I think it is possible. And so far, authorities have not said whether anyone else is involved. And she is the only one charged. So the Arkansas State Medical Examiner 
identified the remains, tentatively identified the remains in that freezer as Talena Galloway. And that is when the arrest warrant was issued. And she is in transit. Corey is in transit to Oklahoma where she will enter her plea because she didn't have to enter a plea in Wisconsin. It was just a hearing to extradite her and... She's on her way, and based on what she said, she's she's got a fight in her. In the, the, the legal process, like for a trial, when is Corey going to have access to what the prosecution has against her? During discovery, or does she have that before? So there'll be a few phases, because she has to be then formally charged in a courtroom. And that's when she will hear the charges, and they don't necessarily have to pre- present any evidence. And prosecutors sometimes take two approaches. One is that they will call a grand jury and they will ask for an indictment. And sometimes the reason prosecutors ask for indictments is because it's it, it's a sense of them um, having an independent body substantiate and support their charges. Does that make any sense? So mm-hmm. you don't have to get a grand jury indictment. You can just bring charges. So it'll be up to the prosecutor to decide if they're going to present some of this evidence to a grand jury and then the person is indicted. Then there's also a pretrial hearing. And in the pretrial hearing phase, the judge basically has to make a decision. Is there enough evidence to proceed with going forth with a trial? Most of the time, the pretrial hearings do the judge generally finds that there's enough evidence, at least that there is a suspicion that you could present. And in the pretrial hearing is when you will hear some of the evidence, some of the strong evidence, but not all of it. And then as they're preparing to go to trial, and this is the discovery phase, you'll hear a lot of delays in court where one side is claiming that they're not getting the information from the other side and again, there's a everything is like a process of revealing the case against the person who is accused. And this takes years. And now during COVID, I can't tell you how many cases are backed up, completely backed up. So I have a feeling I've that we that. will hear some of the evidence against Corey as this progresses through just even the very preliminary charging first appearance, all of that, we will start to get some of that. But if the prosecutor decides and convinces a judge to keep some of it sealed, then it will remain sealed. I think it's going to be an interesting trial overall. Yes. If it goes to trial, it should be Mm -hmm. very interesting. It should be very interesting because I have a feeling she's going to be, Corey's going to be, uh, very animated and vocal about yes. her defense. Now on to a very bizarre case. In 2017, a millionaire day trader who had a secret bomb shelter and all these tunnels built under his home in Bethesda, Maryland, was sentenced to nine years in prison for the death of a worker who got caught in what prosecutors labeled a death trap. The worker was helping to build these secret tunnels Daniel Beckwith, who was a one-time university electrical engineering student, a computer expert, a wealthy day trader. He was into Bitcoin. Um, He was obsessed with the threats from North Korea and the possibility of nuclear war. I mean, this is only one of his obsessions. Um, So he decided to build this secret bunker. Uh, And I know that you've been following this, Stephanie, so you're going to have a lot of details. I'm just going to give a, a little bit more on this case, and then you can you can just chime right in there. So, so what ended up happening was that he didn't want to, according to prosecutors, Daniel Beckwith didn't want to hire a professional contractor to build these secret tunnels because the whole point is they're secret, and then he would have to tell someone. <laughs> so in in trial testimony, because he wanted to keep it secret, he hired someone who he had been having some business dealings with. He hired 21-year-old Asika Kafra, and he had met Kafra because he had invested $5,000 in Kafra's startup venture, mm-hmm. okay? And that's how he met him. And Kafra would then work for these really, really long stretches in these deep tunnels underneath the house. And 
I mean, uh, the way the prosecutors described the, the, the electricity was being run through extension cords from the house into these tunnels, it sounds very unsafe. It obviously was not permitted. And ultimately, there was a fire, and Kafra got trapped and died. And so that's what this case was about. What responsibility did Daniel hold in all of this? And as I said, you know, he he was convicted on on two charges, uh, and we're going to get into that. But I know you're dying to tell us about Daniel and and all of his weirdness and this situation. Well, it's it's a sad story because both both Askia and Daniel have very interesting backgrounds. Um, really sad. Daniel Beckwith, I. Whenever I do these cases, I like to look as far back as I can because I really think somebody's upbringing, the way they're raised, what they're exposed to in in early childhood especially, is going to shape a lot of of who they become in their adulthood. And Daniel had an interesting upbringing. His father, well, his father David, he was a trained singer. He trained under like this famous French composer. He'd performed in musicals and operas. He even performed at the White House once. Um, his mother, Linda, had initially studied at Columbia Law School. She'd worked um, briefly for a government attorney, but then she kind of became anti-government. So, and you see this a lot. And I mean, myself, I completely understand that, questioning your government. Um, she she eventually told her son, like, I think all politicians are just grimy. It doesn't matter which side they're on. From my experience in Washington, I've seen horrible things and I don't trust politicians. And that's fine. But Linda kind of took it to a whole nother level at one point. Um, and I think it happened when her husband, David, got diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2000 because she would become his obviously full-time caregiver. And this is a lot of stress mentally and emotionally for a family on top of certain um, anxieties and idiosyncrasies you already hold. And it seemed like Linda kind of became a hoarder. They were very protective of Daniel. They didn't let him go outside and play with other kids. He was homeschooled from, you know, all through school. He never went to a real school until college. He was homeschooled. The people in his neighborhood said he, into his late teens, was not allowed to go trick-or-treating without both of his parents with him. Um, and then the house, whoever was al allowed inside the house, which was not many people uh, because they were very insulated. They didn't like to go out and they didn't like people coming in. They said it was messy. It was like the, the home of a hoarder. You know, there was papers everywhere and books and food, half eaten on plates, um, things like that. So this is how Daniel grew up with a very paranoid and anxious mother, a sick father, and overprotective, um, overprotected, lived in a bubble, you know, had no outside influences besides what he saw and heard at home, which I can only imagine what what it was. Um, so and his mother, you know, thought he was brilliant. He learned to read when he was a toddler. So she would just tell everyone, you know, he's going to do great things. He is a genius. And so he came to see himself as a genius. And I think it's safe to say he was above average intelligence. You know, I don't know his, his uh, exact intelligence scores, but he was smart. He claimed he finished most of most of his high school curriculum by the age of 15 because he was homeschooled. So then he started kind of doing a self-education, um, blowing things up in his yard for chemistry class. He had a home lab where he did electrolysis experiments <laughs> and he electrolysis experiments yes i don't understand the I removal don't. of hair that's that's what i thought electrolysis was <laughs> but that's uh what they say <laughs> he had he also yeah he also had a very big fear of, of death right and this i believe comes from being raised by a mother who's like if you go outside you know, something bad's going to happen to you. It's bad out there. You're better if you stay in here. This is commonly seen in, in children of parents that, that do this. Uh, so in 2010, he enrolled at the University of Illinois, and this was the first time he was away from his parents and out of the house, and everybody in his neighborhood was like, oh, good for Daniel. He finally has a chance to live a normal life. Like, we hope this, uh, this, this goes well for him. But And he was anxious, but then just a few months into being at school, uh, his mother 
is diagnosed with cancer. Well, she was diagnosed with cancer far before this, but she had never gone to the doctor because she doesn't trust the doctors. So uh, just a few months into being at school, the paramedics go to his mother's house while he's away. They take her out and within two weeks, she's dead. And then his father starts to decline after this as well, health-wise. So Daniel is just a mess at his mother's funeral. Everybody said he just looked dazed. You know, his life's changing overnight. And now he sees like, well, maybe my mom was right. Bad things happen out in the real world. He puts his father back into assisted living. He goes back to school. But then weird stuff starts happening at his school. Um engineering students are getting these weird emails that don't make any sense. They seem like they're coming from professors, but it's clearly a hacker. (laughs) One day, somebody tried to get into the school and couldn't open the door, and it turned out that all of these external locks on the school had been filled with this goo substance. Glue, right. They had been glued. And it took, what, I forget, almost $20,000 or over $20,000 to actually re-enter the school. Um, and, and it turns out Daniel was, was kind of the one who was responsible for this. And he did a lot of other things too. They go into his dorm room, you know, they find a bunch of stuff that, that implicates him in, in these things. Surprisingly, it doesn't seem like he was expelled. Um, he was arrested and, you know, then he, yeah, that's kind of a form, I guess, of expulsion. <laughs> but, <laughs> then, but, when, but yes, then he was but, let out. Right? Well, he he was not sent to prison. Mm-mm. He was placed on probation. probation. But then right. back at the school after. Right. Weird. <laughs> well, I think they wouldn't uh, want him back. Um, it, is it clear? Did he absolutely go back to school? That's not clear to me. Um, it says he's back in Bethesda, Maryland by... Yeah, I'm not sure whether he yeah. actually went back to school. I'm not certain of that timeline. Well, the reason he ends up building this bunker eventually, because eventually he's not in uh, Illinois anymore. He's back in Bethesda permanently. He was afraid of a nuclear attack due to his proximity to Washington, D.C. And I I read this book um, a while ago. It's by Robert Wallace. He's an ex-CIA agent. He spent 40 years in the CIA. And I remember something so specifically from the book that says, if you live in the D.C. area, and that includes Bethesda, Maryland, at any point, you're 99%, you have a 99% chance of being within walking distance of a spy. So I, I, I don't know if his, his fears were completely unfounded. Obviously, there was political volatility always going on. You know, that's a fear of everybody's at all times that something bad's going to happen. But we don't build bunkers under our houses to, well, to prevent I think that. He- I think, Stephanie, you you have to look at other things that he did that would suggest why he did build a bunker and that this was really, it's just another step in his paranoia and his fear. Because when his mother became ill and, you know, when you lose a parent, you become more vulnerable, especially if you've been living in a sheltered environment. So he went so far in his college years at this time, you know, when his when he lost his mom and, and he's feeling incredibly vulnerable, he takes like his mother's minivan and, and he reinforces it with Kevlar steel. He starts wearing a bulletproof vest himself almost all the time. Because he so, heard that if you were his in it, people in his age group are most likely to die from a car accident. So yeah. So he's very, very worried about the world around him. And it's Everything. obviously a very scary place for him. Mm-hmm. So if you look at this pattern, it almost makes sense. It's in step with his fear that he would need this bunker and these series of tunnels. Now, um, it, how he met Kafra again is interesting. He, you know, he was kind of living his whole life in, you know, on the web. He, he his life existed virtually, and he was very well known for his trading and his advice, and he had a lot of people who always wanted to hear what he had to say, and he was doing well with his trading. And so Kafra had this idea, and he needed an angel investor. And I'll keep this part of the story, I think, a little bit short. You know, he invested the $5,000. Kafra tried his best to get other investors. It, It never really ended up working, but Kafra 
looked at Daniel as someone who was not only brilliant, but also someone who had access. And I think some of this paranoia may have started to rub off. So he manages to convince him to help him to build this, this these tunnels under his home. And I didn't get the impression that I felt like because there's all these texts, you can see the texts that um, that Askia is sending. He wanted him to invest money in his app, which is actually mm-hmm. really brilliant. I feel so bad for this young man because he had so much promise. He was very smart. Um, he actually had a great idea for an app. And, you know, they, him and his partner, Askia and his partner were trying to get it. Obviously, they they looked up to these Silicon Valley millionaires, multi-billionaires, people like that. That's what they wanted to do. Um, and they he, he wanted to invest money. But then I believe something happened and, you know, he gave him some money. So Daniel gave, he gave him $5,000. And then he was like, well, I would like more. And Askia said, I'll do anything. You know, I'll um, get a part-time job. I'll do whatever I have to. I'll help you with your bunker. <laughs> and then Daniel was like, hmm, well, yes, I think that we will we will make that deal. So it wasn't... Um, it's sad because Askia was in a vulnerable position where he desperately wanted to to reach his dreams at all costs. And like you said, as he and Daniel spent time together, and I mean, Daniel is this strange, elusive figure who just like not one of those people like don't call me i'll call you kind of people the first meeting they had was at a hookah bar and he was wearing like a bulletproof vest you know underneath his shirt and he was like well you never know what's going to happen so as they're communicating and meeting yeah it's going to rub off on on askia as any kinds of you know extreme sorts of beliefs do when you when you start to think about them and and you spend a lot of time with that person so i think he saw this bunker that that Daniel was building as something very legitimate, and if it helped him to be a part of it, and he would actually get get what he wanted at the end, then it's like a win win. Like I'm helping my new friend, and I'm getting what I want out of it. But he was actually posting on Instagram, which I found interesting. While he's like in the tunnels digging, he's like posting his progress on on Instagram, which did not really coincide with me for Daniel's level of like security. Like did Daniel not know that Askia was posting this on Instagram because Daniel didn't even want Askia to know where he lived. So he told him, I believe that he lives somewhere in Virginia, made him wear these goggles when he drove him there and then drove like farther than he should have. And then just ended up in Bethesda, right? But basically. Yeah. So the family actually thought that their son was actually working in Virginia Mm -hmm. because the whole setup of getting him to the tunnels and uh, the pretense here was all mm-hmm. that it was in Virginia. So let's get to the day of the fire. Um, on September 10th of 2017, Kafra was working in the tunnels when this accidental electrical fire broke out in the basement above him. Remember, he's under the basement of the house. Kafra smelled smoke, climbed up, tried to escape, but was overcome by smoke, and he had... Apparently, according to prosecutors, that because of the hoarding and the clutter, it was even more difficult to get out. A neighbor noticed the smoke and called 911, but at this point it was too late because Kafra had already been overcome. The jury convicted Daniel Beckwith of second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter in the death of 21-year-old Kafra. Authorities never accused Daniel Beckwood of trying to intentionally kill him. It was not an issue of what you would call a a murder, a Mm. typical murder. Instead, they argued that Kafra had been subjected to such dangerous and haphazard working conditions that essentially Daniel caused his death. So at Beckwith's nearly three-hour-long sentencing on 2019, in 2019, he was described as you have brilliant, obsessive, somewhat uncaring. You know, it appeared in some degree a lack of empathy for others. But if you don't have a lot of communication with human beings, you may that that may have never been installed. That button may have never been installed in you. So that kind of leads us all to today and why we're having this conversation because. A Maryland appeals court has overturned the conviction. So Beckwith was the conviction on a second-degree murder 
the appeals court has said that there wasn't sufficient evidence to warrant that charge. So unlike a straight homicide charge, second-degree murder includes what is called, quote, depraved heart. And, and this describes a death that occurs due to an extreme disregard for human life. And the argument was the conditions under which he was working, Daniel had no regard for human life. But in the 62-page opinion, which was filed last week by a three-panel judge, th this is their analysis. They believe that there is a difference between a reckless disregard for human life and extreme disregard for life. It does seem like shades or degrees, but when you're dealing with charges, sometimes that really is the difference, is that shade or degree. So the judge said that this distinguishes between grossly negligent involuntary manslaughter, which is punishable by up to 10 years in prison, and then the depraved heart second-degree murder is punishable by up to 30 years. So what has now happened is that that charge, the second degree charge, the harsher charge, remember he was sentenced to nine years, that has now been overturned and kicked out. But the manslaughter charge still exists. The other thing that the appeals court said that I found really interesting was they said, you know, the tunnels may have been dangerous, but the appeals court said that the prosecution failed to present evidence that they were structurally unsound. I was fascinated by that note because to me, I'm like, um, well, I suppose one can never assume in a trial, but how, how were they truly structurally sound? I just found that very interesting that they, they felt that was part of the weakness I in mean, the prosecution's case. Technically, the tunnels were structurally sound. Okay, so like you're not going to go in there and they're not going to cave in on you. Um, but the, the issue was with the electricity. And, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time to discuss it today. But for anybody who's interested, like you should go in and look more into this because there's a lot that happened between when um, Askia and Daniel met. And then this this horrible day that Askia lost his life. Um, lots of messages you can read, interactions. They, they actually did almost kind of become friends. So the second degree charge has been overturned. The manslaughter charge has been upheld. So now Daniel is going to be resentenced. So originally he was sentenced to nine years. The new sentence could be anywhere between six months to five years. So that's what's going to happen now. And, and you have to wonder, of course, for the family of the victim here, the possibility that given if the judge decides in this new sentencing hearing that time served, the possibility I think is very real that Daniel may be getting out of prison very soon based on this change in sentencing. So we don't know until he gets into court, but I think that's what the next step is going to be with this, which makes you again wonder and when you look at cases like this, how every little bit is literally held together with a form of legal scaffolding. And I cannot imagine that his family is handling this very well. I personally don't think that Daniel should have ever been charged with a depraved heart murder. Um, I think it, it was definitely manslaughter. The reason I don't like the depraved heart murder is because you don't have to prove intent. And and that to me is is an issue because at the end of the day, I believe intent matters. Daniel didn't bring um, this man down into his tunnels saying, I hope you die. I don't even think he brought him down there saying, I don't care if you die. And I think that's what the depraved heart murder charge suggests, that Daniel sent him down there and was like, I don't care what happens to him. I don't care if he dies. There's witnesses who saw Daniel screaming, asking his name, trying to help him get out. Like Daniel clearly did not want this man to die. Um, did he put him in a position where he did end up dying that wasn't uh, that wasn't safe? Yes, but that that is manslaughter. Um, the intent should matter, and 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 so I think they overcharged him to begin with. I don't know. I think it's such a hot case. I don't think that he'll get out with time served. I do think the judge will probably, you know, like you said, what's that going to feel like for the family? Um, but we'll have to wait and see. What do you think about the depraved heart murder thing? I don't know because, you know, everyone's actions 
do matter, right? Everything that you do that leads to a situation which is dangerous, I think, and this may not be the perfect word, but I believe that based on the case as presented, that Daniel has fault, has liability in, in this other man's death. Absolutely. So I don't know how much he should serve for that and what the proper penalty for it is, but it is a human life, mm-hmm. and there does appear to have been some disregard for human life based on the circumstances mm-hmm. of the death. For sure. And I, I just have an issue with any murder charge that that says, well, we don't really even care about what, what the intent was. And this depraved heart murder, from what I know of it, the charge is kind of almost saying like, we don't care about the evidence. Like, we don't care um, what if you had intent or not. We're just going to kind of assume that you did this maliciously or without a care. And that's kind of, it's it's almost more emotional than evidentiary based. But, um, you know, in these cases are emotional. But at the same time, we want to make sure that justice is served fairly in, in all situations for the victims and for the people who who are on trial. We want to make sure our justice system is fair to everyone. So this is our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. Uh, A South Carolina couple is arrested for making porn videos on the Myrtle Beach Skywheel ride and in a community pool. Eric Harmon and Lori Harmon, both 36 years old, have been arrested on a variety of obscenity charges. Myrtle Beach police opened an investigation into indecent exposure on January 12th, and they said that they found the videos. Of course, I'm always curious. It's like, well, how'd they find the videos? Okay. Police say that that in one video, the couple is having sex in a gondola. You know, those, you know, it's a wheel with a gondola, a very typical kind of ride. And based on the video that you can see what's going on there in the gondola, through the gondola, through the glass. In another video, the couple is having sex in a community pool over at Surfside Beach. Okay, so Lori Harmon faces three counts of indecent exposure, two counts of participation in preparation of obscene material. I'm always fascinated by the level of these charges and the detail. And then malicious injury to personal property, I guess, They don't want you having sex in their wheel. Uh, Eric Harmon has been charged with two counts of indecent exposure and one charge of participation in preparation for obscene material. Okay, so the following week, the couple gets arrested again because this time the, the charges are similar. New charges against Eric and Lori for allegedly having sex in the Food Lion parking lot. So it's almost as if their locations are getting a lot less exotic, a lot more pedestrian. They're trying. And, (laughs) you know, food lion. And then a bench near the Floral Lake playground. My my concern there might be if it's close to a playground that that's probably, you know, where they push the limit way too far. And then Lori is also accused of filming herself. This is this is the kicker. Filming herself urinating at a baseball field while at the playground. Okay. All right. Yes. Jennifer F. writes, somehow I don't want to use public pools anymore. I've always been afraid of public pools. Mm -hmm. And Mark V. writes, she's definitely a keeper. Jennifer F. Classy. Being very kind there, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, that is our program for this week. Stephanie, it's been a pleasure having you. Where can people find you, find your content? Um, on YouTube, it's just Stephanie Harlow. Uh, both uh, Stephanie and Harlow have an E on the end of them. And I also have a podcast that comes out every Friday. It's called Crime Weekly. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I co-host it with uh, ex-police officer, retired police officer Derek Levasseur, who also was on Breaking Homicide on the Investigation Discovery Channel. And he was a winner of Big Brother, I think season 16. So we co-host that together um, every Friday and we talk about true crime cases. Okay. So how did you end up getting so fascinated by true crime? I'm just curious. Mm, um, Not an easy answer. (laughs) I I was a very morbid child from very early on. I read Anne Rice vampire books probably way before I should have. I think I was eight when I started reading those and, you know, got into kind of like dark things and always had a, a, a... 
I don't know, I thought about death a lot, but not in a good way, not like, ooh, death, but you know, as a young child thinking like one day I'm going to die. And I think once again, I had that mortality salience like way before I probably should have. And then when I went to college, I studied psychology and history and, you know, took a forensic psych course, which got me interested in crime, um, read a lot of books, which some of them were true crime books. And from there, I just loved the whole, you know, aspect of it where these cases are crazier than anything any fiction book or movie you you could read or see but there's also people in them that I don't want to portray as characters um so you you put yourself you find yourself becoming very empathetic and I want everybody to be empathetic when they hear these stories this could be somebody that you love that I'm talking about this isn't a character this isn't a one-dimensional character this is a real person and, you know, I want people to protect themselves, but also be victims advocates and help the families get awareness out if somebody's missing a child or somebody's mother is missing. If we come together as a community, I think we can really make a difference if we're strong and we're solid and we work as one body. So uh, that's, you know, I just, I love the true crime community. I love how amazing everyone is. And, and I'm also a writer. So I like, you know, putting these things into stories almost. Well, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you and so much. Yes, good, very good to have you. Nice to um, meet you. you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on all social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. So you can find all of our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and on YouTube. You can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.